Well, welcome to Kingsway. Uh, we, we have a lot of fun with Christmas and with life around here, and uh, I'm so thankful for these videos because it's really hard to tell these stories in a way that's new and refreshing. So if nothing else, you get a laughter out of that. My first year here in 2009, our, our then pastor, John Caldwell, I'd been here like a week, and he said, Matt, it's time to do Christmas planning. Got any ideas? After 40 years, I'm out of them. What do you do when you tell the same story over and over and over again? It starts to lose a little bit of its expectation. And so what I want to do today is reinvestigate the original story and see what we might see God doing and what we might learn from it. So if you would, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 2. <laughs> I'm going to laugh at that video all day long. <clears throat> and hopefully you won't film any new ones this year. Luke chapter 2. So we get into the most famous part of the Christmas story now. We're at the part where Joseph and Mary make their way over to Bethlehem. And uh, this is a fascinating story because as we learn, and I won't read all this, I'll tell you some of it, in that verses one through seven, there's a ruler in ancient um, Rome. And his name here is Caesar Augustus. He's also known historically as Octavius. And in case you don't know Roman history, Caesar Augustus uh, was the adopted son. He was the grand nephew of the Caesar you're most familiar with, Julius Caesar. And so what happened was when Julius Caesar uh, was murdered, <clears throat> however that really happened, we're not sure. Uh, Shakespeare gave us a version of the story, A tu brut. But when that happened, what happened was there was a republic in Rome and he was the primary leader, not dramatically different than what we have today. It's similar in that fashion. However, when he died, many of the leaders who were in the Senate and these other rulers began to fight for kind of power and they kind of broke into groups. Well, at that time, this guy named Augustus was 19 years old when his adopted um, dad died. And while he was a young man, he quickly became a, a powerful leader. And over the coming years, he won a number of very, very brutal and bloody battles within Rome itself to become the leader. And something changed when Augustus became the leader because he was given a title different than others who were given the title. He was the first to be given the title emperor. And in case you don't know anything about that, an emperor was somebody who uh, wasn't just a king, wasn't a president, wasn't just a senator in the republic. This was a person who was worshiped as a god on earth. So in a Revelation series, I talked a lot about this. The Roman rulers at this point from Augustus on began to see themselves as gods. Literally, he went back and kind of post-mortem ordained his dead stepdad as also a god-man. But do you see the irony in that? Given where we know the story goes with Jesus, here is this little baby being born to a virgin who is poor from the podunk town of Nazareth, and yet she's carrying in her a God-man, born in the first reign of a God-man, or at least a guy who self-proclaims God-man. Now, that's huge, because when Luke tells the story, there are different layers to the story. There's the story like you sit around and tell, like, you know, then Mary and Joseph got on a donkey and rode all the way to Bethlehem. Then there's the version where you go, now, what else is happening in this text and in this story? And without digging too deep, if you go back into chapter one, we see a lot of time spent in a temple. In fact, the word temple may be the most common theme in Luke's entire book, both in Luke and in Acts, his second book. Why? Because he wants everybody to know that God is building a temple out of you. It's amazing. And how does he do that? By becoming the great high priest 
interesting. So in Luke chapter two, we see the certain thing now. It's not temples and priests. We see something else coming up over and over and over again. It's the idea of Bethlehem. Now, if you don't know anything about Bethlehem, Bethlehem is the city of King David. It's where he made his home. <laughs> Excuse me, literally Bethlehem stands for Bethlehem. That's how you would say it in Hebrew. It sounds terrible, doesn't it? Like I'm clearing my throat. Bethlehem. And it literally means the house of bread. It's fascinating because it's David's city, and not only is it David's city, but David was the great king of Israel. So Luke begins the telling of a story by saying, there was a great king in Rome, and he ordered a census. And so Joseph and his very pregnant wife traveled 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They didn't have a Cadillac, a limousine, or an airplane. This was not pleasant. But they got there. And while it may look like everybody else has power and control and might, the real king is still inside a belly. And then we get to this, Luke chapter 2, verse 8. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them. Here's that phrase again. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all the people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Excuse me, angel, in a what? In a manger. In a what? In a manger. Now, this may seem like no big deal to you because you've heard this story so many times, you could practically tell it in your sleep, right? This was a big deal back then. Now, the manger, literally, all it was was a sign. Now, to, to us, there's a lot more going on there, but it was just a sign. You're going to show up in Bethlehem, and when you get there, you're going to find a baby. Um, are there no other babies in Bethlehem? No, no, no. This baby's special. Well, how are we going to know when we find the special one? Easy. He'll be wrapped in strips of cloth. Well, aren't all babies wrapped in strips of cloth? Yeah, that was normal, but he'll be in a manger. A what? Now, a manger, in case you don't know this, is really a feeding trough. So pretty much what we have is, beginning of the story, there's a king, he's a bloodthirsty, powerful, evil Roman king. In fact, he believes he's God on earth. That's how puffed up he is with his importance. And he has ordered a census, and everybody must do what that king says. But there's another king coming. And this king won't be like any other king. Well, kind of. He'll be a little bit like another king you knew, just better. Maybe you don't know about that king. His name was David. See, David comes, um, we find him in the book of First and Second Samuel. We also find him in Chronicles of Kings, but my favorite version of it is First and Second Samuel. David comes because Israel has begged for a king. 
All the other nations around Israel who don't know Yahweh, don't love Yahweh, all of them have kings. And so they beg God, give us a king, please, we need a king. And God says, you don't need a king, you have me, I'm your king. I'll take care of you, I'll provide for you, I will lead you, I'll do everything you need. And the people say, we want a king, and God says, fine, you want a king, but you get everything that comes with it. And so God searches Israel and says, here's your king, his name is Saul. Now we're told in 1 Samuel that Saul was a foot taller than everyone else else. That's the story of my life right there in a sentence. <laughs> Literally, my boys, I, don't, I have three little boys, and like every week, they're like, Daddy, can we measure ourselves? I'm like, you haven't grown in a week. Now, what blows me away is when they have, right? Like, no wonder I can't keep food in the house. Like, you've all grown an inch in a week. And every day, they want to know how they stack up and how they measure up. And then they're, Daddy, one day, am I going to be taller than you? I'm like, yeah, but I'm not sure I'd make that the goal. It probably won't be hard to do, all right? Like, your mom is taller than me. That's why, you know, it's like, literally, one inch taller. I'm married up. Literally, I'm married up. All right. Saul looks the part. He's taller than everybody. There's one point where they're about to anoint him in front of the people, and everybody's gathered together, and he's hiding because he's afraid of the moment, and he stands up, and it's like, oh, yeah, that's the king. His head is above everybody else's head. But that's the thing, so don't miss this. In the Luke version of the telling of the birth of a baby, what Luke is trying to do is he's trying to lay the setting. You think this guy has all the power because he's got all the outward appearance of a powerful king. He's got a court, he's got horses and chariots and money and clothing and robes and an army. He's got blood on his hands, looks like a king. But somewhere in the middle of Bethlehem, a baby is being born. And he's the real king. In Israel, this Saul, I'm going through 1 Samuel with my men's group, and um, I asked the guys on our last meeting, you know, so what, what stood out to you as you're reading through 1 Samuel? And one of the guys said, I didn't realize how insecure Saul was until we're reading it right now. He is. Saul is so concerned about what everyone else thinks of him that he has lost concern about what God considers to be good and right. And God is patient with Saul constantly rebuking him, correcting him, blessing him, guiding him, directing him. But finally, one day, <clears throat> Saul dishonors God in an extremely offensive way to God, and God says, that's it. I'm taking the kingdom away from you, Saul. And he does. But it's only a chapter later, Saul makes bad worse. And God says, that's it. I'm not just taking the kingdom. I'm taking your life. <sighs> not word you want to hear from God. But Saul reveals his true heart because in the middle of that, he never once falls on his face and repents. And so Samuel, the prophet who has anointed Saul in front of the people, he is broken and he's grieving and God says, stop your grieving right now for I have chosen another man, a man after my own heart. So he says, Samuel, I want you to go to the house of Jesse and there you will anoint the next king. And Samuel freaks out because Samuel, like most of us, expects everything to go according to our plan. But what if Saul hears that I'm going over here to anoint a new king? Saul's going to kill me and probably the new king. Samuel, have you lost sight of whose kingdom this really is? Maybe like first century Israel lost sight of the fact that though Augustus is powerful and cruel, he's not the real king. Maybe like Americans in 2016, Hillary or Trump, it doesn't matter. They're not the real king. I mean, it matters, but it doesn't matter. The real king is still on the throne. 
Now this is important because if you go back, what happens next is Samuel shows up at the house and says to Jesse, I'm here on the Lord's business and uh, we're, kinda, um, we're, we're kind of like undercover here, but one of your sons has business to do with God. So go ahead and bring me your sons and the Lord will tell me which one he's chosen for this important work. And, and, and Jesse brings out his oldest son and Samuel looks at me and he's like, that, that must be him. I mean, he looks the part. He looks powerful, he looks wise, he looks strong, he looks confident. That, I mean, of course, like every firstborn child, right? And all the firstborns went, I told you. <laughs> Stick with the story. Us youngest will tell you how it really goes. Notice this. First Samuel chapter 16, verse seven. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord, the Lord looks at what? The heart. So Jesse keeps bringing sons. Number two, number three, number four, number five, number six. Like, how how many sons are there? No, 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 not it, no. Is this it? Is that all you got? Well, there is this one boy. How do you forget about one of your sons? I mean, like, they won't let me forget. But this gives you some context for this little ruddy boy we are told in the text. He's ruddy. We don't even know what ruddy means exactly. We think in the Hebrew it might mean something like reddish. So we don't know if, if this little boy had maybe reddish hair, reddish tint to his skin. Israelites probably have darker skin in that day and black hair. If there's something reddish about him, yeah, he would stand out. I always kind of picture maybe like the, the, the boy from the Christmas story. Who, you know what I'm Okay, so anyway. I can't prove it. So finally he says, is there no other sons? Yeah, yeah, we got one more son, but he is out in the field. And then 1 Samuel 16, verse 11, Samuel says this. And then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? Well, they're still the youngest, Jesse replied. But he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. We'll send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. How long would that have taken? Send a servant out into the field. Find David. Set something up so that somebody can, he could come in, probably needs to be washed up and clean because he wouldn't be able to be inside with everybody else as he was with the animals. He'd be ceremonially unclean. This would take quite some time and they can't even sit down. Now, each of the brothers went from great expectation to low expectation and irritation. We actually find out later in the story, they are jealous of their brothers. But God was never worried about what everybody else would think. Now, think about this for a minute, guys. As we're reading these stories, we're trying to discover who God is so we can understand who God is in our lives. What is he doing in me and what is he doing in you? If we come all the way back to the first century story and just push pause for a minute on David, God has come through an angel to some shepherds in a field. Why shepherds? I mean, these people were the outcasts of the day literally considered ceremonially unclean. And if you don't know what that means, a Hebrew person, in order to worship and take part in the sacrifices of Almighty God, which was the center of Hebrew society, they couldn't even do it because they worked with animals and touched the things they touched and did the things they did. And yet, God comes to them, a ceremonially unclean group, 
out in the middle of nowhere. While everybody else is gathered in homes in Bethlehem, they're out on the hillside working. And an angel shows up. See, throughout the story of Jesus, we get these characters pitted against each other. You think power and might is where kings are really about. But see, this king that's coming is about humility. So the first people to really announce the coming of the king are shepherds. I don't really have a great comparison for us today. By God's grace, we don't live in a culture like that one then. And so any analogy I give probably offends somebody. But I'm used to that, so I'm going to take a chance. (laughs) I'm joking. This isn't a perfect comparison, and I need lots of grace. And if this is you in the room, I'm just asking for forgiveness before I even say it. But it might not be dramatically different than saying today. And the first people to go and see the Messiah born was the trash collector. It gives just an understanding of the way society viewed them. Like, ew, nobody really wants that job. It's an important job. It's a job that needs to be done. Everybody appreciates the work when it's done because everybody needs the sheep for clothing or for sacrifice, but nobody actually wants to do the job. But God says, I am fully engaged paying attention to that person, and they are a part of my story. But they're a part of the story beyond just the visiting of the baby being born. They're a part of the story by way of profession, by way of occupation. What they actually do is significant in the story. Because this king, who's a king after God's own heart, is only a young man, maybe 15, 16 years old. But God has looked deep into his soul as a young man and has said, he sold out to me. His other brothers all who've probably cut their teeth in the field at one point, they just weren't David. But if you know David's story, we're talking colossal mistakes. Angry outbursts, full of lust, at one point prideful in a way that hurts thousands upon thousands of Israelites, probably not a great daddy, I mean, his family falls apart, he's got one kid raping another, I mean, it's terrible stuff. but he always stays focused on God. So that even when he fails, he comes back. Didn't expect that, did we? See, King Saul fails, and he walks in his failure. David fails, and he doesn't eat for days, and he offers sacrifices to the Lord, and he begs God to forgive him. What made David like that. Well, something about working out in the fields and tending to sheep changed David's perspective about the world. See, we find out later in the story, David's about to go up against a massive giant. I mean, nine feet tall, big dude, makes Shaq look like a little boy kind of guy. And when David goes to battle with this man, he says, why are we afraid? Like, David, you're probably 16, 18, whatever years old. We don't even know how old you are. You're just a young boy. Like, what are you doing talking smack? Like, he's the greatest, strongest man on the face of the earth. And David says, I, don't, I got somebody bigger on my side. And then David says, you don't understand. See, when I was out in the field caring for the sheep and the goats, literally animals would come to attack them at night, lions and tigers and bears. Three of you paying attention. There probably weren't tigers, okay? Leave that out of the story. 
Wolves might come and lions might come and maybe even bears. And when they would come and open their jaws to bite the animals, I'd grab them by their jaws and rip it open. You're like, come on, dude. That's a great story. He's like, no, the spirit of the Lord would come upon me and I could do this thing. God was with David in a field. Why? I don't know. My guess is while David was out in that field and the wandering and the loneliness, maybe as the young cast-aside brother that wasn't all that important, wasn't even important enough to be remembered by his family at all, apparently turned to his God. And instead of seeing his situation as a victim, he expected that the king of heaven was paying attention. Do you? What's most fascinating is after this moment when Samuel anoints David as the future king, he has many years to go, many years to go before he actually becomes king. In fact, we're told in the story, King Saul literally becomes crazy. He's given a tormenting spirit and he becomes constantly uh, disheveled, literally angry and irritated and and, and in a fit of rage. And so so one of his attendants says, why don't you bring in a musician to play music for you? And at the sovereign hand of God, God arranges for David to come in and be the one who plays music for King Saul. So when King Saul gets deeply disturbed, David comes and plays music and all of a sudden he calms down. But everybody starts singing the praises of David instead of Saul. Saul's killed his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. And Saul starts to grow jealous deep in his heart. And as the story unfolds, Saul has a full out plan to destroy David because Saul's heart is so turned away from the Lord and his ways. See, there's two ways to go through life. Expecting that no matter what happens next, God is in control, or expecting no matter what happens next, I've got to take control because I can't trust God. So David runs for his life, constantly hiding in caves. At one point in the story, we see him uh, literally at another town, the enemy's town, standing at the gate, acting like a crazy man with drool dripping down his beard. Why? Because he thinks they're gonna kill him, but he trusts God. The king comes over and says, this can't be the David they speak of. He's nothing but a crazy man now. And he leaves him alone. David writes psalms about this stuff, hiding in caves, trying to get away from the Saul who wants to kill him at all costs costs. And then one day he has his chance. And David could finally turn the tables on Saul. And one day while he's hiding in a cave with some of his buddies, Saul comes in, as the Bible says, to relieve himself. Let's just say it probably wasn't number one. And when Saul is in an extremely compromised position, David's men look at him and say, this is your You can take out Saul. God has delivered him to you. See, in previous series that I've done, I've had people come up to me, especially women, and they say, how can David be a man after God's own heart after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered? How can God say that? Nobody, including God, dismisses David's sin. Nobody. It's great. It's terrible. It's evil. He pays for it with his own baby's life. There are consequences for his choices, but consequences for sin doesn't negate the grace of God. And see, the most unexpected things happen when you count on the grace of God. And David looks at the men and says, I can't do that. I cannot take Saul's life. He is the anointed of God. Who am I to kill the Lord's anointed? And what you don't know is David just passed a test. 
Would David expect God to give David the kingdom when God was ready, or would David need to take the kingdom by force? See, what happened in caves and what happened at foreign cities away from his own family, what happened while he's being pursued by an evil man is God began to form in David a leader. See, leaders can't just be born. They have to be made, crafted by God. And the crafting always comes through pain. So see, most of us read stories and we think stories of power and prominence are where it's all at, but what we really learn is the story is really being written by humility and servitude and shepherds. Do you know how King Saul finally dies? He's at battle one day, and a stray arrow finds the weak point in his armor. Looks like David had it right all along. When God is ready, God will act. And then here's what happened to the people. Take a look, 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel went to David at Hebron and told him, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, when Saul was our king, you were the only one who really led the forces of Israel. And the Lord, the Lord told you, you will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. The what? The shepherd. You will be Israel's leader. So there at Hebron, King David made a covenant before the Lord with all the elders of Israel, and they anointed him king of Israel. And David led the people, and he took them on many powerful conquests. But understand, this king was first a shepherd, found in a field. In fact, the Bible makes that absolutely clear. God chose the shepherd and made him into a king. Take a look with me. Psalm 78, verses 70 to 72 says this. He, that's God, chose his servant David, calling him from the sheep pens. He took David from tending the ewes and lambs and made him the shepherd of Jacob's descendants, God's own people, Israel. He cared for them with a true heart and he led them with skillful hands. God was leading David. Even in the hard stuff, God was leading David because David expected that God could do more than he ever asked or imagined. Listen, I don't know if you're visiting here today, it's Christmas season, you decided to come to church, or if you call Kingsway home, but have you stopped expecting God to show up? Have you stopped expecting that this God who leads shepherd boys in fields, have you stopped expecting him to do something significant in you? He's constantly writing a story that doesn't make sense in the eyes of the world. It's backwards, it's upside down. You want to become greatest, become least. You want to become the most powerful, become the poorest by serving others. You want to win, lose. You want to live, die. And in doing this, he taught us about a kingdom that was based on humility. Whoever wants to be great among you, Jesus says, must be the servant of all. How in the world can you live like that in the world? I mean, like, how is that possible? The scriptures tell us in Psalms chapter 28, verse 8, 
And by the way, this is a phenomenal Psalm of David. You ought to read this one later on your own, the whole thing. The Lord gives his people strength. He is a safe fortress for his anointed king. Save your people. Bless Israel, your special possession. Lead them like a shepherd and carry them in your arms forever. See, that's what shepherds do. Shepherds care for sheep. The shepherd out in the fields, it's his job to constantly keep a watch and look for sick animals. And when he finds a sick one, to go over, pick it up, nurture it, care for it, and nurse it back to health. The shepherd is constantly watching and paying attention for any wild animals. If he sees them, he chases them off or attacks them. He's constantly watching for sheep. See, what happened with sheep, they're a little bit like us. They don't run away from the flock. They graze away from the flock. So they just start eating and not paying attention that they're getting out into dangerous areas. When you get isolated and alone, you're susceptible. And the shepherd's job is to know when even a sheep goes off. In fact, we're told about another shepherd later on in the New Testament. This shepherd, Jesus, when he sees the sheep that wanders away, he leaves the 99 others and he chases after the one. See, that's been the point all along. God is a shepherd and he's raising up a shepherd to watch over the sheep. But the first shepherd he raised up, David, really only points us to the true shepherd, Jesus. And this is the thing, and don't miss this. See, from our vantage point, 2,000 years after Jesus, 3,000 years after David, it's easy to look back and go, that's cool, God. And to miss the fact that every day that David served in a field, God was with him writing David's story in such a profound and significant way that a thousand years later when Jesus shows up, Luke would write about it and say, he's like the David shepherd, but better. How did David become such a prominent figure in the kingdom of God? He woke up today and he said, here's my life, God. Take it and do what you want. When we lose perspective that God is in our stories, we stop expecting that God plans to use our story and then we start living for the glory of ourselves or others. And when we do that, when we do that, we're one dangerous step away from becoming a Saul instead of having a story like David's. So the shepherd is born and he's a baby in a manger. And the angel has come and broke into the scene and has told the shepherds, you need to go into Bethlehem and find this baby sitting in a manger. And before they're able to go and do that, pick up with me again in Luke chapter two, verse 13. Luke chapter two, verse 13, it says this. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven. I wonder what vast means, angels upon angels. Could you imagine the whole night sky being filled up in that place? Praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, dude, we gotta go to Bethlehem. That dude is in Hebrew, that loses the subtranslations. Let's go see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph and there was the baby 
lying in the manger. And after seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about his child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. (laughs) But Mary kept all these things in her heart. She thought about them often. So think about this now. These shepherds show up. Can you imagine this? Um, Are there any babies in the house? No? Okay, next house. Are there any babies in the house? Yes? Are they in a manger? No? Okay. Any babies in the house? Yes. Are they in a manger? Oh, yes. So the way this typically worked is we often picture ourselves these these wooden kind of lean-to kind of situations. Most likely that's not how Jesus was actually born. There's two likely scenarios and we don't know which one it is. Most likely Jesus was born in a cave because that would be one of the common places you could put an animal in that day. So sort of cave-like structure. We don't know how many animals were present or what was present, just most likely among the animals. Why do we know? Because there was a trough. A trough was used for feeding animals. The other possible scenario is um, they had to go to the family, a family member's home in Bethlehem and say, hi, is there a place for us? Now imagine this for a minute. If somebody knocked on your door this week and said, Christmas is in a week and um, I brought my family, I got a pregnant wife here, do you have any place for us to stay? Even if every couch and bed was full, would you look at a pregnant woman and say, No, but I got room in the shed. You wouldn't do it, would you? It just sounds evil and cruel. Well, there's things going on in the story. Number one, it is evil and cruel to turn her away, and so the family didn't turn them away. But they also, nobody gave up their room. Did you notice that? It's very likely, again, we're reading into the text, but it's very likely, given the fact that Mary was full of shame because she was pregnant and she was not yet married, even though it was a miracle, they don't know that. Nobody thinks a story adds up. They probably quit selling it. And so they wouldn't give up a room because she's the embarrassment on the family name. So what happened when there weren't caves is at night they would bring the animals into the lower part of the house and people would stay upstairs. So it's quite possible Mary and Joseph are in a house but down with the animals. But God still provided. There just happened to be a baby-shaped feeding trough right there. And that very thing became the thing that told the shepherds which king has come. It'll be the king in the most unexpected of circumstances, in the most unexpected of times, in the most unexpected of places. And here he is. And the shepherds leave there giving glory to God for all that God has done that night, telling everyone about it. This is perhaps one of the most amazing things. It's the shepherds who become the first quote-unquote evangelists of the Messiah. They leave there and can't stop talking about all that they had seen and all that had happened. And word starts to travel, of course, gets to Herod and other kings, and decrees are made to kill babies because something is about to happen. Everybody's going to lose their power. We can't lose power. You never had power. Because the real king has come. And that king lived his life like a shepherd. When he saw people who were hurting, he met them, he held them. Jesus touched lepers no one else would touch. Jesus 
spent time with immoral women that literally when we're, they are seen in the story, people say, what are you doing with them? Don't you know how immoral they are? And Jesus welcomes them into his camp. Jesus keeps around him men like Peter, somewhat rude and abrasive men who later will betray him, sell him out. But Jesus is so full of mercy. As a shepherd, he's constantly protecting and providing and caring for and nurturing and healing the people around him. That's why Jesus himself says this in John chapter 10, verse 11. He says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. See, a hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him. He isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for money. He doesn't care about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep. And they know me. And just as my father knows me and I know the father, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep too. They're not in this sheepfold. And I gotta bring them in also. And they will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock with one shepherd. With one what? One shepherd. Notice he doesn't say there'll be one flock with one great and powerful king, me. He doesn't say... There'll be one flock, and then there'll be one CEO or president or really rich dude with lots of power, and it'll look like Arnie. It's going to be a flock and a shepherd, and the sheep are going to be so familiar with his voice that all he has to do is whisper, come here, and they come, and he cares for them. I've told this story so many times, forgive me for doing it again, but it's one of those stories that changed my life. I remember being in my first year of Bible college and in a a critical place with God, trying to decide if I was gonna go forward in ministry or go a different direction. I just wasn't convinced yet. And I remember sitting at a church around Columbus, Ohio, and I remember the gentleman preaching that day, and I remember him telling this story. And he said, over in Ireland, when the shepherds are taking care of the sheep, sometimes the sheep graze their way away. The shepherd will follow the sheep at a distance. See, if the shepherd runs after the sheep, what the sheep will do is take off running to get away from the shepherd because they're afraid of him. He's running. And what will happen sometimes is there are all these holes and crevices in the mountainsides over there, and the sheep will actually fall into the crevices. And the shepherd, if he comes up and tries to grab the sheep when he's fallen in there, the sheep will actually start to kick and scream against the shepherd. And they'll end up wiggling themselves in there in such a way that they will be stuck and end up dying in there. So the shepherd goes about five to ten feet away, just out of range, and sit down quietly and wait for the sheep to get tired. And when the sheep are depleted, the shepherd comes over and picks them up. and carries them home. This is the king who was born in a manger. The one who picks up sheep and carries them home. David, the first shepherd king, writes this about our God. 
Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. Your rod and your staff protect and comfort me. You prepare a feast for me in the presence of my enemies. You honor me by anointing my head with oil. My cup overflows with blessings. Surely your goodness and unfailing love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will live in the house of the Lord forever. We don't know exactly when King David wrote that psalm, but many commentaries would tell you we think he wrote it towards the end of his kingship when his family had fallen apart and his own son was trying to rip the kingdom from David's hand. And David had a choice to make. When someone else wants the kingdom, do I act like Saul? And instead, David chose to be a man after God's own heart. He left his own kingdom and said, if it's mine, then God will take care of it. I expect God will take care of it. And sure enough, God restored the kingdom to David so that a thousand years later, another king could come. But this king was the real king. Listen, friend, have you stopped expecting God to be king? What needs to change in your life to align your life to the king of all the universe? The one who built powerful stars in places we can't even see, but yet becomes a baby and a manger to show you how kind and gentle he is. You can trust him. He is good. In John chapter 10, verse 10, that same passage where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus says, the enemy has come only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come to give life and to give it abundantly. Today, as we're about to take communion, I ask this of you. If you have business to do with God, see him as a good shepherd who wants to care for you and bind up the wounds and meet you right now. If you've never surrendered to the shepherd king, why wait another week? Why keep doing this on your own? He will sit and wait for you to stop kicking and screaming and trying to fix it on your own. That's a dangerous place to be. You're never outside his reach, but if you have hardened your heart against him, you're missing out on all the blessings and the protections of Psalm 23. He will bring you home. 
While the rest of us take communion, if that's your story today, would you just go to my left, your right, underneath this screen, and just talk to one of our staff members or volunteers who are there, and they're ready to answer questions about Jesus. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask our communion servers to go out while I pray. I'll let them go ahead and go. Father in heaven, thank you for being a good shepherd. Jesus, thank you for laying down your life for us. Thank you, Jesus, for being so strong as to rip apart animals, so tender as to care for a wounded sheep. Father, I pray for us as we come into this last week before Christmas. God, we pray that you would watch over us. We're expecting you, Father, to still do great things in our hearts and in our lives. Teach us to trust you like David. Teach us to trust you like Jesus. And God, we pray that you would create in us a new heart. In Jesus' name.